The Secret Service releases a report on how to prevent mass shootings. Plus, Bearing Arms Cam Edwards on updates to the pistol brace ban and other ATF inconsistencies. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter right now if you want to keep up to date with the latest in what's happening with guns in America. You can also buy a membership if you want to help support the reporting that we do and get early access to this podcast, as well as exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of members-only analysis content. Uh, And you'll get the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment if you want to. Uh, This week, we are talking about the ATF, its new pistol brace ban rule. We have a published date. We've got some controversies, a lot of stuff going on with the ATF right now. And to help us walk through all of that, we've got uh, one of our favorite guests here on the podcast, Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms. Welcome to the show, Cam. Hey, Stephen. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. How are you? I am good. I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought me on to talk about the easy stuff, you know, the stuff that doesn't require like hours upon hours of reading legalese and government documents. Oh, this, this is great. It's only <laughs> the, the rule is only 230, 93 pages long. Uh, and there's only another, what, 50 pages of the impact assessment to go through as well. So, right. you know, some light reading. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I really do appreciate uh, you bringing me on, though. I always have a good time talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. We love having you on. And, and you've written a couple of interesting things uh, regarding the ATF lately. Uh, but I want to start real quick with um, the, the rule. We have a date for it now. They are going to publish this rule on January 31st, 2023. That gives you 120 days from that date to comply with the regulation or face potential felony charges. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's an important thing to know. This, we've been talking about this rule for a while because they had publicly announced the final version of it back on, uh, I think it was January 13th. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, they hadn't actually published the rule, and that's an important step in all this, right? Yeah. So, so why do you think that there was this gap? Um, because typically, you know, you'd hold the press conference maybe the day or two before, maybe if it's going to be published mm-hmm. on, on Monday, you have the press conference on Friday. But as you say, this has been uh, like over two weeks now. So what do you think, what do you think was responsible for the delay? That's actually a really good question. I think, uh, you know, I, I will say that I, I think that they published or they announced it, didn't publish it, but they announced the rule and put out the text of it that day because it was right before SHOT Show, which is the industry's trade show for anybody who doesn't know. So the ATF goes to SHOT Show every year to interact with the industry that it regulates. And so I think they wanted to get the text out there. Uh, Maybe they always plan to publish it uh, on the 31st, but they wanted to get the text out so people could read it and go to them with questions during SHOT Show, which uh, we can get into some of that stuff uh, here because I I did attend the Q&A that the ATF director put on and uh, we have some quotes from him that I can read out, but um, that's my best guess as to why there's a, this like two week gap or really like three, almost three weeks gap, right? Um, between the uh, announcement of the rule and the actual, you know, technical publishing of it, because that's significant, right? Because uh, the 
the rule doesn't start to go into effect. There's that ticking clock of 120 days where you get this amnesty period to comply. Um, that doesn't go into effect until that's actually published. And it's, I think it's also significant for some of the lawsuits as well, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, one of the things that we've seen post-Bruin is um, a lot of states are kind of crafting their laws, A, to make it really difficult to find standing, right? Um, you have to show that not just could you plausibly be harmed by this, but that you are actually suffering harm. And so, uh, like, the, the first lawsuit in New York filed after Bruin got rejected because the judge said, well, the law hasn't gone into effect yet, so you guys don't have standing. Um, and then that was, you know, refiled as uh, Anton Yook. Um, ultimately, Judge Sotheby said, hey, not only do you have standing, but, the, yeah, these laws, are, you're likely to win. Um, and granted that uh, temporary injunction before the Second Circuit overturned him. So in terms of the timing, this really is important, right? Because now the clock, as you say, is ticking. And so now not just gun owners uh, who might be plaintiffs, but FFLs who might be plaintiffs can say, okay, listen, I am going to be suffering harm because particularly if you're an FFL right now, what do you do with the braces that you have in stock? That you that you purchased, you know, for retail sale because the ATF said these are fine, and now the ATF says, uh, uh-uh. uh, um, what do you do here? So you know, you've basically got a very limited window for the courts to step in, or you will be irreparably harmed. You'll at least be out the cost of those braces, if nothing else, right? Yeah, yeah, very good point. And did you have a theory as to why there there's this sort of extended delay before when they announced it and when they're going to publish it? No, I don't have a, a, a working theory on it. I just I find it interesting. But mm. I also find, uh, you know, your latest story at the reload about, again, the continued clarifications of a rule that has not yet officially been published. I find that to be really interesting, too. And and I yeah. wonder there's a part of me that kind of wonders if you don't if they're not just kind of floating this stuff out there, waiting for the feedback and then trying to, uh, if, if need be, formally tweak you know, the language of the rule or simply say, oh, no, 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 this is how we are interpreting this language. So no, no need to worry, gun owners. Yeah, that could be right. I mean, that, you know, that goes back to the idea of, of making the text available before SHOT Show so that they could actually inter- have their officials interact with industry members to see what they what they said. I mean, obviously, you know, this is the rulemaking process. They went through a whole comment period, so they should right. have presumably a really good idea of, of the objections to this rule or the problems with it. But um, perhaps they're, they wanted to be sort of extra cautious. I don't know if they can even change it at this point because, uh, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole like rulemaking process that you have to go through to tweak these things. Right. And that's why I, to me, it makes sense that they're, 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 they're looking for what that pushback is. And obviously, yeah, you're right. They had 200 and something thousand comments mm-hmm. in opposition to, uh, the brace right. rule. Right. So, so they know what, what a lot of this opposition is, but you know, again, the, the language is so vague and arbitrary and ambiguous at times that I, I think even even though it's 293 pages long, th- there are a lot of folks who legitimately are struggling to figure out what the ATF means when they, w- you know, with these rules and what they mean when they t- uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, in, in your case, the story that you just wrote about, um, you know, pistols that are imported versus domestically produced. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit. So there was a controversy that that came to light out of this rule. You know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of pages to this rule. So there's a lot of things in there uh, that maybe don't come to light immediately after it's published. So uh, I had Alex Bosco, the inventor of uh, pistol braces on last week on the show. Uh, and he, 
he noted that there is this issue with imported pistol-braced guns uh, because there's a federal law that deals with imported rifles uh, that said you can't have more than 10 parts that are imported for a gun, that a rifle that can't itself be imported, if that makes sense to anyone listening. Firearms regulation can be very complicated. But the point is, that only applied to rifles. And so people were importing pistols of the same sort of platform as like, say, an AK-47. I think the Draco is a, a common uh, example of one of these guns that would be affected by this rule that's pretty popular. But you can import the, this or parts from it um, as a pistol variant uh, with a pistol brace attached to it, and it doesn't violate this law. Now, the problem comes in with the ATF now considering all effectively all pistol-braced guns to be rifles and to be short barrel rifles at that. But to the key issue here is that it's now considered a rifle. And they say not only now is it considered a rifle, but it always was was a rifle. Um, and so that means when you brought when you put that pistol brace on it or assembled it here in the United States, that was a crime. And the ATF talks about this in the rule. They say that removing the brace doesn't uh, rectify that that crime of assembly. And then they, they go on to sort of imply, at least I, I would say, that what you can do with those guns is only turn them in or destroy them. This is how now this is in a section where they're talking about the monetary impact of this rule. And so they have to, you know, for the way the rulemaking process goes, they have to try and calculate what effect the rule is going to have on on people who own who are affected by it. And so they uh, interestingly put everyone who owns 90 the 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 law the rule is called uh, section 922R and they put everyone with a gun that's affected by this into the category of people they consider uh, who are going to be turning them in just alongside the people who can't legally own short barrel rifles in whatever state they live in, because some states don't allow you to possess them at all. Um, and so that made uh, someone like Alex and a lot of other people assume that they're basically uh, forestalling this option of either removing the brace or registering the gun, uh, which could have a, a pretty big impact. But ATF now says, I've reached out to them for to try and get some clarity on this issue. And, and they say that you can, in fact, um, either remove the brace or register the, these affected guns just the same way you could with, with any other gun affected by this rule. Which is uh, fine, you know, all things considered. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm glad as that uh, goes for, uh, you know, the owners of these farms. But again, <laughs> if, if that was the intent, then why, you know, in, in this portion of the rule or the, the impact statement of the rule, why break out foreign produced pistols and kind of set them aside and treat them as if they're they're special uh, and different than domestically produced pistols with braces on them? Yeah, I, I think that's still a very good question, right? This is still, you know, the, the ATF can say whatever it wants about, uh, how it's going to interpret these things. And I think it's important to get them on record, given the controversy over, you know, how, how people with these guns are supposed to comply with this rule if they 
if they choose to comply with it. But, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because they put out a statement that solves all the issues in the rule itself. This was something that Alex, I talked to him briefly uh, about it. And that was the point that he made, like, yeah, they can say that, but it doesn't change what the rule actually says. You know, they can put out a public statement or Q and A's on their website or whatever, but it doesn't change what the rule actually says itself. And there's still, you know, going to be uh, questions, I think, raised in court over this exact issue. I, I think you're right. And again, like, well, first of all, why should we trust any given interpretation from the ATF when they have demonstrated, uh, you know, the ability to turn around and say, actually, never mind. We, we now interpret this to be completely different. And by the way, we always have interpreted it this way. There's something very Orwellian going on here, Stephen, you know, and, yeah. and it goes back. Look, we saw the same thing with the uh, with the uh, unfinished frames and receivers. Mm-hmm. Right. And when with, this was when this was stocks. first put out. Yeah. With bump stocks, too. But with frames of receivers specifically, when uh, it wasn't polymer 80, but it was uh, division 80 uh, was in court suing over the new rule on unfinished frames and receivers. They said this is going to shut down our company. And the DOJ attorney said, no, it's not, because this uh, this only applies to to kits. If, if you're just selling an 80 percent unfinished uh, you know, receiver or a frame by itself, you're fine. The law doesn't doesn't cover that. It's only these kits that you have to worry about. Um, and then what was it uh, a month ago, six weeks ago? Yep. They come back and say, oh, actually, never mind. Uh, it's not just the kits. Now, it is actually the the, the receivers themselves. If you if you got a jig, we consider that to be a kit. Right. So they are constantly going back and changing their minds and telling us, OK, what we said to you two months ago is not what we're saying today. Yeah. Um, so I think that that Alex is right to be concerned about that. I think everybody is right to be concerned about this because this is, I think, fundamentally the heart of the problem of what we're talking about here. When we when we talk about these administrative abuses, the ATF has the power to set regulations. They don't have the power to make law and they don't have the power to make law while pretending that they're making uh, existing regulations or reinterpreting existing regulations. And ultimately, that, I think that's what's going on here. I don't know how willful this is. But it's very easy to see this as attempts by the ATF to sort of push and prod and poke to see how far they can, you know, what they can get away with doing here. Yeah. And let's real quick talk about your recent story over at Bearing Arms on uh, another example of this, where the ATF published a, a FAQ on its website for people who have registered NFA items, right? You know, things like suppressors, um, you know, short barrel rifles, short barrel shotguns, uh, full, you know, machine guns. Uh, and it said that you cannot transfer the, uh, you know, any NFA item to anyone else, even if you're in their presence, you know, anybody who's not the large registered owner of it. Uh, and, and so what, what's the latest with that? Cause I saw it and I was, uh, you know, it sounded very shocking because, you know, it's a, you, know, you can't ever borrow, even shoot someone else's gun with a suppressor attached to it or go to a machine gun range and rent a machine gun. Right. That's the thing. I mean, the, uh, this was this was I'm quoting here from the uh, FAQ. Uh, the question was, if I'm the registered owner of an NFA item, can someone else shoot my item in my presence? Right. So not even, hey, Steve, can I can I, you know, can I borrow your, you know, uh, suppressed uh, pistol this weekend? I just want to go do some shooting. No, not even Stephen. I see you shooting your suppressed pistol. Could I have a turn? Mm -hmm. Uh, According to this, you know, uh, FAQ, 
quote, no, only responsible person or persons listed on the approved registration may have physical or constructive possession of the NFA item. Um, so, you know, you had uh, like Phoenix Ammunition saying not only was this shut down, uh, you know, a class three rentals, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, saying that, you know, if you went to work and your you know NFA item is locked up in a gun safe in your house, if your wife knows the combination of that gun safe, well, she could be considered to be in constructive possession of that prohibited item. And so right. unless she, too, is one of those registered persons, that would be a felony. Right. I mean, this is just a, it's crazy. And yeah. again, it would be a complete change of existing law. A huge change. I mean, there's whole businesses built around this. I mean, even, uh, you know, I know machine gun rangers are relatively rare things in the world. There's, you know, Las Vegas has a bunch of them. They're, mm-hmm. they're around. Uh, and it's sort of the most obvious thing people might think of with this. But uh, even like your average range generally has a suppressor, uh, a suppressed gun that you can rent. Um, and then, of course, the constructive possession thing is is massive because of the implications of uh, how far wide reaching that implication is. But yep. uh, but, yeah, I mean, this could have people build whole businesses around this idea that you can rent out class three NFA items. Uh, and it's been that way um, for almost 100 years since the NFA was first enacted. Right. So it and they did just put this this uh, FAQ up and. And seem to change all of that overnight, uh, at least yeah. in their public position on it, right? Exactly. So, uh, so, what, so Ryan, what's the latest? Is it- okay, so so Ryan Petty, who is uh, a contributing writer at Bearing Arms, um, you know him, Ryan's daughter um, was one of the victims in Parkland. Uh, and Ryan is not one who, uh, you know, reacted with calls to uh, to ban firearms. He he and his daughter love to go shooting together. He is very much still a Second Amendment supporter. But Ryan is also an FFL. So this, you know, kind of impacted him. Um, so he reached out to ATF. Um, I reached out to National Shooting Sports Foundation. And uh, uh, I think I heard back a little bit faster than Ryan did. But Ryan actually is the one who wrote this story for Bearing Arms. So I want to give him all the credit here. Um, Larry Keene. Uh, from National Shooting Sports Foundation, in turn, reached out to ATF, and I guess had a quicker response than we did. And this is what they told him. Uh, quote, the Q&A currently listed on the eForms account is incorrect. In this scenario, the registered owner of the NFA weapon is co-located with the firearm, and thus no transfer has occurred. However, if the person firing the NFA weapon is prohibited from possessing the firearm, then there could be a GCA violation. Uh, we are working to correct the site as quickly as as possible. Um, Larry did a little bit of additional uh, digging on the uh, regulations, and he found this ATF FFL newsletter from June of 2017 that specifically says the on-premise rental of national firearms firearms is also permitted. So, uh, you know, again, Stephen, the question becomes, how did this get put up on on the eForms website? Right. You know, it, it, it was this just some IT guy freelancing uh, and writing gun laws in his spare time. Like I have questions about how this inaccurate information was allowed to go live and what type of um, editorial process there is within the ATF to put this information out there. Because once again, it seems like this is sort of designed to, um, I would say designed to cause panic. But it's it's I don't know. It's weird to me, Stephen, how all of these mistakes and errors that the ATF makes, they all seem to cut against gun owners. You know, it's never it's never a, a, a mistake that uh, really impacts the agency negatively. It's always mistakes that impact gun owners negatively. I just find that very odd. Yeah, I mean, I think it just goes to this overall 
idea of the agency's inconsistency and incoherence to some degree. That's really been building for the last decade or more. Um, and, and it's really reaching this level now where it's difficult to take them seriously on anything they say, whether it's in a determination letter or a public statement or an FAQ on their website uh, or a rule that they're proposing. Like it, it's hard to look at it and have confidence that they won't, that either they said something wrong or they won't just change their minds uh, in short order down the line, especially uh, for very politically charged uh, uh, sort of issues because the, the agency feels very politically captured at this point. They, they certainly seem to change their opinion on pistol braces, depending on who's in the white house. Um, and you know, their, their stance towards interpreting these, uh, these sort of gray area things in the NFA, uh, they always want to push those to the boundary when there's a Democrat in the white house and they want to do the opposite when there's a Republican and it's extremely transparent. Uh, I think at this point it's difficult to continue to take the agency uh, seriously in what they say. And that's the unfortunate thing because they have the power to put you in prison, right? And it's, <laughs> right. it's you can't just ignore them, but it's detrimental to our society that they are this inconsistent and incoherent in how they operate because, um, you know, how are gun owners supposed to act in good faith to uh, comply with the laws that we have uh, if the ATF is all over the place on what they're saying enforcement should be. And, you know, the, the cynical uh, part of me says maybe that's a feature uh, for the Biden administration and not a bug, right? Maybe, maybe the more confusing and incoherent the ATF's rulemaking is, um, the, the more likely the thinking would go that uh, some Americans are just going to say, forget it. It's not worth the risk. I, I, I don't want to accidentally run afoul of the law, so I'm not even going to come close uh, you know to, to violating it. I think that is a, a, a real strategy that gets employed. I mean, look at the pistol brace rule as a whole. Let me ask you this. You're somebody who uh, has read through this rule and covers this for a living, just like I am. Uh, and I asked Alex Bosco the same thing. He's the guy who invented these devices and, and owns the largest company that makes them. Uh, what Are there any pistol-braced firearms that are not SBRs under this rule? Do you know? I don't know. Me either. But, 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 but here's the thing. I, I, I think, again, that's, that's by design, right? You're, you're supposed to fill out this worksheet and based on the numbers that you get and what it adds up to that, that should tell you whether or not the ATF will likely consider uh, your, your brace farm to be an SBR. Yeah. Um, that was the I, old rule that, you know, they had the, they had a point system. Then people said that was too confusing. So they said, fine, we'll get rid of the point system and they just don't have a system. And they sort of imply <laughs> that you could maybe make one that's uh, in fact. Uh, so part of my story also Quotes from Stephen Dettelbach, the ATF director, his speech to SHOT Show, to the Industries Trade Show, put on by NSSF. And he implies that there are that you could have a, a braced gun that doesn't run afoul of this new rule. Um, you know, he talks about the standard set, like what you're talking about. They, they had a point system for these standards, but in the new rule, they just have these like six criteria and they don't really give you any way of understanding it includes things like um the the, the uh direct and indirect marketing of the device so right. how, what the atf thinks about the indirect marketing of the device 
whether it implies that the it's intended to be shouldered is is part of the standard and it's wildly subjective thing. Um, and then, you know, whether the, whether the brace fits over your, your forearm, which again, people have different sized forearms. Uh, and if you notice in all the pictures in the brace, it's always like the most jacked ATF agent. Who's the one testing that he's got these <laughs> giant forearms. Um, right. And so, you know, it's, it really is impossible. I think to know whether your gun is, complies with the rule it, it seems to me that they're saying you can a dental box says directly in, in one of the q a questions that you it's possible to have a braced p pistol that's not an sbr but if you read through the rule it doesn't there's no way of telling how you would do that that right and that's the thing so they they you know they maintain that yes it's a possibility um which I think probably, you know, partly at least is an attempt to provide them legal cover that, no, we're not actually uh, making new law, right? We're not redefining every mm -hmm. uh, brace-equipped uh, pistol as a short-barreled rifle because it's it's possible that you could have one and, and not run afoul of this regulation. But they're not going to tell you <laughs> how to do that. They're, right. they're you know, right? They, again, and again, they want you, I think, to come down on the side of, yeah, well, it probably is, so I better register it or I better get rid of it. Right. I think that's... I think it's hard to draw any other conclusion, just looking at it objectively. You know, I, I don't know, maybe we're being too unfair to the ATF. I would love to have the ATF come on and, and talk, talk. you know, I'd treat them fair. I'm sure you'd have them on your show if you could. Absolutely. Um, always welcome to address people directly, um, you know, uh, and answer some questions and try to give us more clarity. They did. They did give some clarity on this uh, foreign made pistol braced guns issue. So, you know, they, they and they gave you some they basically reversed themselves on the the uh, NFA possession thing. Um, but but, you know, there's so much more clarity needed, frankly, it's just not there. Uh, and actually, let me read you one quote from this uh, this Q&A that that the director did. Um, and, and I want to get your reaction to this as well, because this this was something I didn't realize this when I was listening to it at the time. But when I went to transcribe it for this piece. I think this is going to be a, a significant issue as well. Um, you know, he, he talks about, this is about complying with the rule and how, how people can comply with the rule. Uh, he, and he's talking to dealers. So they asked, you know, what are we supposed to do with all the ones we have now? And he says, uh, quote, you can remove the brace and sell it as a pistol. Um, and then later on, he says, uh, you know, th that they tried to make this as fair as possible to individuals who have these devices. Um, and he says, so there's a bunch of different options that a person has one of those braces that is covered in configuration with a pistol, what they can do. One thing you could do is detach and there's no longer an NFA weapon. Now you can't reattach, right? So you have to do it so you can't be reattached. Uh, so this implies that uh, if you take the brace off of your gun, yes, it's no longer an SBR according to the ATF, but then you have to find some way of making the gun or the brace uh, impossible to reattach in the future. Is that right? Is that what you take well, away from this, this comment? And, yeah, but also too, when you were talking about what was it, nine twenty two R? Wasn't there a statement in there that simply removing the brace does not necessarily make that that pistol NFA compliant? Well, that's the confusing part. It doesn't. <laughs> so nine twenty two R is about yeah. assembling the gun. The crime is focused around assembly of the gun. And so okay. just removing the brace 
because the ATF now considers these all braced, basically all braced guns to be rifles. Right. It doesn't undo the act of assembling it. But they they seem to have this position. Did say that it did, that, that one of the options for these dealers would be to simply take the brace off of the gun? Yeah, this is this is why it's this is one of the reasons why it's so confusing, right? Because um, I mean, it, it seems to be that their position, as best as I can understand it, at least, is that this this crime for these specific guns that were imported of assembling them into a rifle that's not allowed. Uh-huh. Uh, if you have ten or more imported parts, you can't you know you can't do this sort of a very niche part of the law. But um, now the you know even though they were letting people import these for a decade basically uh, without issue. Now they're saying that this was always a crime to, to bring these in and then assemble them into uh, rifles, which uh, it just gets so confusing because people didn't consider these to be rifles when they were doing right. this. But the ATF is now, and the ATF clearly didn't cons- didn't do anything about them being rifles at the time. But uh, that crime is separate from like you not registering the gun as an SBR uh, under this new rule, I guess. I understand. There's but like two separate to, but, crimes. But, <laughs> Removing the brace doesn't solve the the 922R violation, but it does solve this issue with whether or not it's a pistol or an SBR that needs to be registered. So then the question becomes, okay, well, what sense does that make? How, yeah, how does that yeah. logically make any sense? Yeah, that, you yeah, know, because know. one of these firearms was imported, right? Could still, I mean, we're still talking about, you know, uh, uh, AK or AR variant style right. pistols, right? Same for the most kind part. of guns, yeah, basically. Um, but because you know one w- was produced overseas and then brought here, the that somehow it, it's I mean almost like it's almost like the ATF is saying that that's a functionally different firearm than a domestically produced uh, AR style pistol that has a brace attached. This is why the rule doesn't make any well. It's one example <laughs> of the rule not making any sense. And and again, you know, listen, when people talk about this rule being uh, politically justified more so than based on public safety, I think this is a pretty clear example of that. Right. I mean, what is the public safety benefit of having that rule written that way? Yeah. And, I, I you know, I think this comment from Dettelbach about how not only do you have to remove these braces, but you have to find some way of making it impossible to reattach them. Uh, that's that was news to me. I, I didn't remember seeing that in the rule itself. Uh, you know, the ATS thing is, you know, you just remove the brace and it's not a problem anymore, uh, or you can register it or you can turn it in or you can destroy it. But, you know, obviously I think they expect the vast majority of people to just, uh, disassemble it, take the brace off. That certainly comes through in their, uh, the, the impact assessment that we were talking about earlier, because they don't estimate that a lot of people are going to turn these guns in or destroy them. Um, in fact, that was, uh, Basically, the only groups of people they seem to expect to do that are people who live in states where you can't have um, an SBR at all, uh, so you can't register it legally, and then people who are confused about this 922R situation. No one else, it seems, they were expecting to turn them in. And one of the interesting tidbits in there is uh, why they don't expect this to happen, right? Um, they, they seem to expect most people to just take off the brace and or maybe just ignore the whole thing. I, I don't know. But OK, but uh, one of the reasons they think that is because of what happened with the bump stock ban. And I want to get your thoughts on this. They say in this impact assessment that they only received 580 total bump stocks throughout the whole country out of what they estimate to be 
520,000 that were in circulation when that ban went into effect. Um, and so I think they're, they're expecting not a lot of people to turn in these guns based off of this. Basically, nobody turned in bump stocks. Um, and so yeah, I'm interested in your reaction to, to that. Little I, 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 mean, I, I think it's wise to set their expectations low uh, based on those numbers. But I mean, listen, you, you can look at uh, New Jersey and their magazine ban, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. the fact that uh, zero law enforcement agencies reported magazines being turned in. Um, the compliance rate for uh, the SafeX uh, assault weapons registration requirement in New York, I think, was estimated to be about 15 percent in the three years or six years uh, after the law took effect in 2013. Um, you know, I, I think that that there, there is a massive amount of noncompliance going on, uh, particularly when it comes to these types of rules that are immediately challenged right in court. Uh, I think there's certainly a. Um, uh, a philosophy among many gun owners that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wait and see, right? Maybe I mm -hmm. don't take these items to the range with me. Maybe I don't bring them out in public, but I'm not gonna get rid of them uh, while there's an active court challenge going on, right? Uh, particularly in light of the Bruin decision. So, and I actually think that's probably what explains the 580 that were turned in because I know that some people turn these in with the intention of having the, the ATF hold on to them while these court cases were playing out, so that mm. if they do win, which I mean, the bump stock case did win in, in the Fifth Circuit just recently, as we know. Um, yep. They wanted to get them back at the end of that. Uh, so that's another that's another consideration, I think, in here. But but um, yeah, I mean, uh, what's I, I also want to get your final takeaway here on like um, on the legal situation. Like, as I just mentioned, the bump stock ban just got uh, blocked by the Fifth Circuit, creating a circuit split that sort of incentivizes the Supreme Court to take up that case. Um, and it seems to me, at least, that the legal arguments are going to be identical between the bump stock ban case and any case against these this pistol brace ban. Uh, do you think I'm off base or is that how you're looking at it too? I mean, I've seen, um, I can't remember who the Second Amendment attorney was who, uh, who said, it might have been Guy Relford who talked about uh, how there are some differences between the uh, the two rules. But I, I, I think you're right. The, the main thrust of the argument, um, and we saw this in the comments that NSSF submitted on the uh, stabilizing praise, um, calling it arbitrary and capricious, right? Calling it a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. This is, again, lawmaking, not rulemaking on the part of the ATF. And when you're taking... Again, commonly owned items, what, 10, somewhere between 10 and 40 million of these braces uh, in the United States, right? That's the, that's the that's congressional the research. Congressional, congressional research. research test. Yeah. And Alex Bosco says that now ATF put the number between three and seven, and now they're saying it's probably closer to three. Bosco, who again is the inventor and owns the largest company that makes them, thinks it's at least 10. Uh, is where he puts it. So there's a, there's obviously, we don't know, but the, yeah. there's estimates all over the place. And even if it is 3 million, that's still a lot of, a lot of firearms affected and a lot of owners. It, it is. Um, and again, you know, the ATF's not arguing that these are dangerous and unusual items, right? They're arguing that putting one of these braces on a pistol um, turns it into a dangerous and unusual item. Uh, now that the braces themselves are dangerous and unusual. So I think that I, I think that certainly this is going to get challenged, right? Uh, we know SAF is uh, already litigating here, um, yeah. and there are going to be multiple other lawsuits filed as well. I think yeah. NSSF is even looking into the possibility of uh, litigation. And the, and the NRA are filing one. Um, right. Well. 
so we are going to to see those those arguments. And yeah, I, I'm sure you've read the the Fifth Circuit's decision on the bump stock ban. And I, you know, there was kind of an interesting split uh, in the Fifth Circuit, right? There were 13 judges who uh, said, "Yeah, the ban's wrong," but they differed on the reasons. Um, and I think there were eight that basically said it was an, a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act. I think there were another five who said that it was the rule of lenity. Yeah. Uh, that, that really is the, you know, the overriding concern here that this is so vague. Um, so there are, I think, a couple of, of live arguments to to use. And it may be that, um, you know, one or both of those arguments actually carry the day. I, I think that I think in this case, both of these things are true. I think the ATF wrote a an intentionally vague law that is uh, really impossible for the end user to understand uh, and therefore fully comply with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that in doing so and in writing this really vague interpretation, they stretched the bounds of their own authority and they crossed over into actually creating a new law and creating a new class of banned firearms. Um, so I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that um, that we'll see a successful challenge here. Um, I, I also maybe I'm a little pessimistic that the Supreme Court might not step in right away. Right. Mm. Um, you talk about the split now on the bump stock ban, but the Fifth Circuit cases, as we yeah, I spoke with Michael Cargill, who's the who's the plaintiff in that case mm. uh, for Cam and Company, I think it was two weeks ago. And he said his case is actually a little bit further along than like Clark Opposians and others. His case is already gone to trial. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court could even say like, eh, you know, what? we don't really have a, a mature split yet. We've got we've got signs of a split developing, but uh, we'll hold off for a little while. Interesting. Um that's always a possibility, you know, and I, I think the, that the, the question in my mind right now is how much wiggle room, how much leeway and how much time is the court going to give uh, circuit courts and district courts to get this right before they once again step in and say, OK, <laughs> we'll repeat it for those who are slow in the back of the classroom, you know, shall not be in France. Here's what we said in Heller. Here's what we said in McDonald. Here's what we said in Bruin. Pay attention and start to follow it. Yeah, although I would I will say that this is it's you know the Cargill case is actually not a second amendment case right it's it's a like you APA like you case. mentioned earlier it's the APA yeah, it's the rule already which which are areas where i think both of those uh defaults or defects uh occur with this pistol brace rule as well and probably with the the unfinished uh receivers rule too in that like the ATF was all over the place on these things you know bump stocks they said were legal then they decided they're not legal after the fact and that they were also always illegal. And they did that with both of these other rules. And in fact, the pistol brace one, they've been all over the place on that uh, in you know the decades since they first approved the Bosco's uh, initial brace. And so, you know, it's very difficult to understand if you're uh, somebody trying to comply with the, with the rule, like, like we just went over, even the two of us don't have a, uh, a perfect grasp on on how it works and so you know i think it's a really um ripe for that kind of challenge and uh, while it took the bump stock ban four years before it actually got blocked uh by a circuit or by a, by an appeals court um i think that 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 ruling itself is going to accelerate the case against the pistol brace. That's my, you know, I'm not a lawyer. You're, we're not lawyers, but that's my feeling from somebody who covers this regularly is, you know, in the fifth circuit at the very least, 
there's reason to think that the this case might move much more quickly than some of the bump stock ban cases did, be precisely because of that bump stock ban precedent. I, uh, I, 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 yeah, I think that's a a pretty good assumption. Uh, obviously, there's no guarantee, right? It's really hard to predict what mm-hmm. any individual uh, court will do. But and it doesn't mean that the Supreme um, Court is going to step in, as you mentioned. No, it doesn't. But as you say, I mean, thirteen to three. Even again, if there was that sort of split uh, in favor of uh, the plaintiffs in that case mm-hmm. uh, as to what argument prevailed, um, the thirteen to three, I think, matters, yeah. right? And 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 that should signal that. Um, uh, the Fifth Circuit is at least interested in any similar abuses mm-hmm. um, coming out from the ATF. So mm-hmm. knock on wood, uh, you're right. And this is something that's going to be on the radar sooner rather than later. All right. Well, where can people uh, follow along with your coverage of this uh, if, if they want to learn more and read more of your writing? Yeah, you bet. Just check out bearingarms.com. Uh, you can also go on YouTube or uh, Rumble or all the major podcast platforms and check out Bearing Arms Cam and Company. We do that Monday through Thursday. Uh, we love having Steven on the program. I have to, I, I should probably ask you off air, but uh, can you still come on the show on a regular basis? Do we need to go through any like corporate PR stuff to make that happen? Uh, I think I need to get approval first, but I, I might be able okay. to, I'd probably still be able to do it. We'll see. Well, you got approval last time, yeah. so it's not a big I don't deal. Think it's so. a, I don't think it'd be a big issue. All right, we're going to shoot that up the uh, chain of command, and I'd love to get Stephen on my program uh, next week yeah, at some point. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, we're talking with folks like Larry Keene, Michael Cargill, as I mentioned, the name plaintiffs. So we we try to uh, you know cover one topic a day on Bearing Arms Cam and Company, and uh, and I look forward to sitting down with you again very soon. Absolutely, me too. All right, well, we're going to head over to our news update now. All right, we're back here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman for our news update. How are you doing, Jake? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you? I'm doing all right. The The Eagles are playing in the NFC Championship uh, on Sunday, so pretty excited about that. We're recording this on Friday, so a couple of days of excitement building for me to go from here. Uh, by the way, another pitch here to join the Reload, because if uh, enough of you join, maybe someday I'll be able to buy tickets to uh, <laughs> the NFC Championship or uh, perhaps the Super Bowl. You never know. Um, but uh, we're going to need a lot more signups, a lot more memberships <laughs> for that yeah. to happen with the prices these things are going for. But um, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that this week. Have you got anything interesting coming out? Anything fun? Uh, I'm Broncos, going to. Uh, uh, Broncos are not. Yeah, I was going to say, football is hopeless right now. Yeah. Uh, the Nuggets are doing great in the NBA for go. the NBA fans out there. We're first in the mm-hmm. West. And then uh, tomorrow. Uh, Actually, today, as of our recording, I'm going to see DU Hockey play at the Ball Arena downtown. They Ooh. play against Colorado College, their crosstown rival. It's a big deal nice. in college hockey. College so. hockey. Always exciting. Yeah. Flyers had four fights in one game last night. Nice. So they, they're terrible at hockey, but they're fun to watch when they Little have three fights. Broad Street Bullies action. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they lost um, to anyone wondering that question. But uh, but it was fun to watch, at least. Uh, they're uh, hockey's go. hard because I think you're not uh, like the the rebuild timeline on a hockey team is so much longer it seems like to me than in most other sports. Maybe baseball yeah. would be another one where it's not you know football at least you're like oh okay uh, even basketball you know you get someone and they can have an impact immediately like Cincinnati right. turned their team around in like two years right because they drafted Burrow and Chase and then. They were contenders. Uh, you know, obviously yep. other things happen, but um, you can do something like that. Whereas like, oh, my God, hockey, 
like look at the Devils, the Jersey Devils. They had like five first round number one overall picks in a row, and it's they they were still bad for until like just now. It takes you like a decade to turn around. That's my feeling, at least, especially if your team is always sort of middling. They're right in the right. middle of the pack. They're never real Stanley Cup contenders, but they're also never the worst team in the league, so they don't get those kind of draft picks. resources. Yeah. yeah, that's the fly. That's quintessential flyers. Um, right there is like since 2010 when they went to the Stanley Cup, and even that run was like they were they barely they got into the playoffs in the last on <laughs> a shootout in the last game. So it's not like they were super Stanley Cup favorites. They just made a great run, and then they just uh, they've been right in the sort of middle of the pack ever since then. And I yep. don't know. They're not going to be the worst team in the league this year either. <laughs> uh, they're not. Gonna, they're probably not going to make the playoffs. But uh, anyway, at least they're fighting. So that's that's something to watch. And at least the Eagles and Phillies and Sixers are good. So I, I, yeah, hard to complain too much. Um, but yeah, uh, glad, glad we got to talk a little bit about something lighter there because uh, now we're going to talk about something much more uh, serious and uh, depressing, frankly. Uh, and that's the recent mass shootings in California. We had uh, two in sh- quick succession there. And um, uh, what we're going to actually focus on is a recent report from the Secret Service that you wrote about, which details uh, some of some of these incidents. And try- it looks at a bunch of incidents over a four-year period and tries to find some connections or some takeaways that that society, you know, we can look at uh, and try to perhaps prevent future attacks like this. So can you just give us a little bit of detail on exactly what they found? Sure. Yeah. So as you said, the Secret Service released this report. Uh, They have a a subdivision in the agency called the National Threat Assessment Center. And they basically analyzed a series of what they call mass attacks, which they define as an uh, an incident in a public or semi-public place where three or more people are harmed, not including the attacker. So this is not specifically just an active shooter incident or something that you might see in, in other contexts. It includes things like, you know, someone taking a car and, and, and attacking or a mass stabbing spree, for example. So it's all of these mass attack incidents that they examined. And what they found was that, well, they, they, they studied 173, I guess, fell under this criteria that they used. But they found that in more than three quarters of those cases... The individual or individuals who went on to commit these attacks exhibited concerning behavior that was picked up on by their peers, their family or law enforcement prior to their attack. Right. Um, So that tells us that there's clearly pre-attack indicators in the vast majority of these incidents. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people have noticed over the years, right? The reporting on each one of these incidents, there always seems to be something that was a red flag or a warning sign. You know, that's why red flag laws have become a relatively popular solution for this. Uh, you know, certainly not a perfect one for a number of reasons that you know we've talked about previously on the show. But uh, you know, there's there's criticism, and they also aren't they don't work perfectly to prevent these incidents. But but regardless, uh, you know, that's something that people I think have noticed certainly from watching these unfold is that there are usually some sort of uh, warning sign or usually some sort of incident that happened previously where uh, if something had been done, it could have prevented this person from, at the very least, being able to legally purchase guns. Because wasn't that another finding of this report that most of these guns 
most most of the incidents that involve guns, the guns were legally purchased, right? Yeah. So uh, a little less than three quarters of these mass attack incidents were committed with firearms. And of those attacks that were committed with firearms, I believe about a quarter involved illegally obtained guns. Mm -hmm. And about one third of those attackers were prohibited in some way from owning a gun. Either they were a felon or they were adjudicated mentally deficient by a court. Um, So in a lot of these cases, there, there were already things that should indicate that they couldn't obtain a gun to commit this attack in the first place. Which does uh, also show you that even if you do follow through sometimes and the person is prohibited, they can still carry something like this out, um, even by obtaining a gun somehow. I mean, you know, sometimes it's uh, systemic problems like in Southern Springs where the shooter was prohibited from his uh, criminal record in the military, but those records were never shared with the FBI's background check system. So he was able to buy a gun from a dealer without being denied on the background check. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, still, I think that that leaves a lot of, you know, it's what's two thirds of the attackers who used a gun weren't prohibited, even though they probably, they may have had incidents in the past, in their past, which would have made them prohibited if someone had followed through on them. Um, you know, that, that sort of uh, reminds me of, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that that reminds me of the Parkland shooter uh, and some of his domestic violence incidents. Um, the, uh, obviously the most recent shooter in Colorado at the nightclub uh, where he had previously called in a bomb threat and threatened to kill both his family members, his mother and his grandparents and police officers, but was still not um, that he was charged, but the case didn't proceed because the family members dropped out. Um, and then nobody, nothing was done about the threats towards police. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of those sorts of things. It seems like uh, from this report in a lot of these attackers histories. That's right. Yeah. I think they found that something like two thirds. So of that three quarters that they identified that exhibited concerning behavior, about two thirds of those had made serious violent threats that were picked up upon either by, you know, employers or family members or even law enforcement in this case. I think 64% had criminal arrests or at least charges filed against them in their past. Hmm. So clearly, once again, documented, at least risks, documented severe risks that weren't, I guess, not enough was done to intervene to prevent them from later going on to commit more heinous acts. Yeah. uh, And you saw this in, in the Monterey shooting. With that attacker, he had had, uh, at the very least, a previous criminal uh, incident with illegal possession of a firearm in the 90s. Um, And so it's not clear why that didn't make him prohibitive, why he was able to purchase guns or or have the guns that he used. Um, But yeah, so this carries through even to these most recent shootings. Uh, And and I think it's, it's important to understand that because... Uh, as I think this port report gets into, means that things can be done, um, right. that, that the, these are preventable, many of these incidents. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, about that section? Like, So they're saying, all right, there's these red flags that occur. There's some common ones among these attackers that we examined. Uh, what do they say about what could be done? Yeah, so I guess they have a a system behavioral threat assessment is the Secret Service's term for their system for trying to identify these patterns of behavior and then work with either local law enforcement partners to sort of implement plans at the department level. But it also recommends stuff like workplaces 
creating um, ide threat identification programs for or, or other cases, um, sort of like intermediary getting between workplace grievances and, and identifying workplace grievances before they fester and become violent. Because the vast majority of these attacks, they were saying, could be identified to a, a personal grievance of some sort, either perceived or a real slight that was done to one of these attackers. And so being better about at the community level, at the workplace level, at the school level, um, creating these systems to intervene before things fester and, and become violent when they don't need to be is, is what they're really recommending. Yeah. And I think that goes along with uh, something that Professor James Allen Fox from, from Northeastern, um, who helps run the Associated Press's uh, mass shooting database, uh, what he was telling me back when we had him on the podcast uh, a while ago, I think is, uh, you know, over a year ago now, but a lot of these basic lessons remain the same, unfortunately, um, uh, each time, which, you know, is that these are preventable. These are people who generally feel some sort of uh, grievance that they've been, you know, wronged in some way and that they don't see, um, that th they see this as a, outlet for that um, and that there can be ways to intervene ahead of time if you recognize the warning signs and take action. Now, at the same time, this report also makes clear that there isn't necessarily a mass shooter profile. It's not like you can just check off, oh, the, he's got these three uh, characteristics, so this person is definitely going to be a mass shooter. Uh, they do note, I think, repeatedly in there that while these warning signs can indicate that someone is you know, prone to commit uh, a mass attack like this, doesn't mean that they will. And in fact, the vast majority of people who exhibit one of these warning signs it will not become violent, right? Yeah, they, they especially made this clear when it comes to mental health symptoms, because I believe they identified something like 60 plus percent of these mass attackers exhibited one or more mental health symptoms leading up to their attacks or during their attacks. Um, but of course, we know that people all over the place struggle with mental health mm -hmm. um, illnesses up to one extent or another, but then don't go on to commit attacks, right? Of course not. So you have to be careful with how you apply these these perceived uh, criteria, because um, like you said, not everyone that meets some of these criteria is going to go on to then become an attacker. Right. It's just like not everyone who has a grievance at work or feels bullied or uh, is, is upset about th their divorce or something along those lines is going to go out and kill somebody. That's obviously, obviously not the case. I think the, that, and that is something that makes it more difficult, right? To combat these things because you can't know ahead of time, which person who exhibits one of these warning signs that they describe in this report is going to end up being somebody who, uh, is capable of, committing this kind of mass violence um, because the vast majority of people are not somebody like that. Or uh, even if they are, even if there were, you could prove somebody was predisposed, it doesn't mean that they would do it. Right. Um, you know, that, that's, that's the issue that you're dealing with. And I, so I think there, <clears throat> but still, it doesn't mean nothing can be done again. Right. It's still there. They have these solutions that they've laid out of basically making sure that you're intervening when you see one of these warning signs, when, whether it's a school official, a work, uh, you know, uh, somebody who works with someone else who's exhibiting you know, this kind of stressor um, or a family member, like you have to realize that 
the first of all, people who carry out mass shootings don't always, there's no profile for someone like that. It's, you know, there's a stereotype out there about it. And, <clears throat> ah, excuse me, but that can lead to people assuming that, well, you know, this person might be struggling with something, but they're, they're not, you know, the stereotype of a, of a, of a killer. And so I'm, I'm gonna, you know, not do as much as maybe I should. I'm not going to be the person who speaks up or intervenes to get this person help or to, uh, you know, make sure that they're, uh, held accountable for their actions or something like that. You know, when they, they, when they commit a smaller level crime. And, um, and I think that is ultimately one of the big problems that they're talking about in this report is there's people recognize these warning signs, but they often don't associate them with the potential risk of, uh, you know, them leading to a mass attack. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's exactly right. It's, it's a matter of identifying these these patterns of behaviors that have been pre-attack indicators in the past, especially if they occur, multi multiples of them occur for, for a single person. And then basically a, a communal-based see something, say something type response where, yeah. you know, get involved. Be, don't be afraid to intervene um, because it just might it just might prevent something like this from happening in the future. Right, right. Yeah, uh, that that is, I think, the takeaway that I got from that report, too. Um, and... I think it's valuable. I think there's a lot of experts who study this that basically point to the same answer, which is what this report also gave us, which is there are warning signs. Uh, they don't necessarily mean that, that whoever is exhibiting these warning signs is going to commit mass violence, but you should they should be followed up on regardless. Right. Whether it's and that can be a different kinds of way, whether it's getting someone mental health uh, resources or whether it's uh, making sure they're held accountable when they commit a lower level crime, you know, whatever the case might be, uh, there are different solutions, but there are these common warning signs that exist in these situations that are perhaps easier to see in hindsight, but something people should look for ahead of time and recognize. Uh, and, you know, you see that advice in, uh, this report, you see it in the Violence Project's writings, which is another good resource on this, uh, whose data actually is encompasses an even wider range of of time, goes all the way back to the 50s, I believe. And uh, and then, you know, James Allen Fox will often also um, uh, you know, advocate for the same thing in terms of uh, recognizing warning signs and doing something about it. So, you know, I think that's a really important thing to recognize uh, across these different experts who uh, are, are focused on this issue in a, especially the ones that, that, that focus on it in a nonpartisan way that sort of aren't attached to uh, one side of the gun issue or the other. Uh, like this, this secret service report, you know, there's things to criticize in here. Certainly I'm sure, uh, you know, for instance, their methodology is, uh, it's actually a bit confusing. They seem to be, um, ran, you, there's three or more injured in a public attack. Uh, but I don't know what criteria that, cause obviously they only got 173, whereas the gun violence archive has several hundred every year. 
Um, so it's, I don't know if they're rooting out like gang related incidents or, or crime related, you know, crime related incidents that aren't sort of random acts of violence, like what we're, what most people think of with mass shootings or mass attacks. But, um, you know, obviously that that's way more than what you have from, uh, you know, the violence project or the APs count. It's way less than what you have from the gun violence archive count or from, uh, for instance, the FBI's active shooter uh, estimates are much higher as well. So yeah, there's always going to be, uh, there really isn't a, a gold standard at this moment for um, how to measure these things. Uh, or at least there's, I think there's a gold standard, which is like the violence projects. Four more killed in a public shooting that's not gang related. Um, but, you know, that's what I think most people associate with mass shooting, although it can be very useful to broaden that out for this kind of research, especially if you're looking for people who are carrying out attacks, but maybe they're not as successful at it. You should still look at that incident and understand it. Now, uh, I do think rooting out the gang violence or uh, other sorts of crimes like, uh, you know, robbery gone wrong sort of situation is, is very different from a random act of, of mass violence, uh, in, in my opinion on that. So, uh, there are some better measures in my mind than others. Uh, and obviously we've talked about this bunch on the show before, but you know, there's, there's definitely things in this report that you can criticize, but, uh, but it's another one where I see a lot of the same conclusions from that I see from other serious researchers on this topic. And so I think it's valuable. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. When researcher after researcher that, as you said, focuses narrowly on this issue, comes up with similar conclusions that, hey, we keep identifying these same few red flags, uh, these same few pre-attack indicators. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. And uh, I think folks should take it pretty seriously. So absolutely. And we will this is part of what we cover, right? I mean, it's not it's not the main focus of our coverage, but it's an important part of this whole discussion of guns in America. So we will keep on top of it for sure. And if you want to stay on top of it as well, I would encourage you to go over to reload.com and buy a membership today. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and additional reporting that you can't find anywhere else. You'll also get this podcast a day early and you'll get the opportunity to appear on the show. I'm hoping we can have another member segment here in the near future. So if you, if you're a member and you want to be on, just reach out in your Sunday newsletter, which is another perk of membership. You get an extra newsletter each week. But uh, yeah, we'd love to have more of you guys on. Always enjoy talking to the members. I saw a bunch of them at SHOT Show. Uh, so that was fun uh, to see people in person as well. But uh, we'd love to have you on the show and, and, and chat with you a little bit about uh, just everything, your life and how you got interested, how you became a member, all that stuff. So reach out, just reply to your Sunday newsletter and I'll, I'll get that email. Uh, but for now, that's all we've got. And we'll see you guys again next week.